indeed what an opportunity it is and a blessing at that that we each have been granted this morning. The capability and health, the disposition that's been given to each of us in mind to assemble that we have today. What a tremendous blessing as we start this new week and to give thought to those matters of greatest impact and importance. Namely to begin our week with a worship unto the great God who made us. Indeed the one who does all things well. So many things, as we noted in the announcements concerning illnesses and sicknesses, and also other blessings in terms of things happening in your life and mine. But today, in terms of the lesson, you probably noted in the, even in the bulletin that the title is the same one that's on the wall to my left. War, a good warfare. We will turn our attention, at least for a few moments this morning, to the thought of war. But of course, it is a demilitaristic war that we may be fighting in Afghanistan or elsewhere but rather a war spoken of on so many occasions within the pages of the New Testament. Some introductory comments or remarks that might well set us in course for the remainder of the lesson might well be these. The devil himself as in fact that real character and one who is so notably active in so many ways is one who obviously is powerfully strong. You and I do a great deal of disservice to ourselves if we underestimate our enemy. In fact, isn't it obvious to say that when a particular physical military engagement takes place, even if one of them is better prepared, more armaments, more military available to them, if they nonetheless are unprepared to use those weapons, if they are not prepared at the moment to employ them, the enemy can overwhelm them catch them off guard, perhaps destroy them with little effort. In a spiritual battle, it also is the same for you and me. Even though we may have at our disposal the greatest of God's blessings in terms of fighting powerfully, if we are unready to use them, if we're unprepared to employ them, we do a tremendous disservice to ourselves and to the cause of the Master. It is for those reasons today that some of these thoughts will come before us a few of the elements in the lesson may have the note of bluntness with it as we make use of some passages in the Scripture that assert to you and me what is involved in this battle in which we're engaged. All the while, as we look at them, we can appreciate good news that often comes our way, but also bad news as well. In fact, some of the news that we'll note is not all that pleasant, but nonetheless, as soldiers in the army of the Lord... We must be aware of it, ready to utilize it, and always faithful. And those who are in a, fidelity, a matter of fidelity in mindset, it is with that in mind. Let's come to our first slide as we make note of some things that can be so disturbing. We noted just a moment ago that in this warfare that is the Christian life, there are individuals to whom you and I look to with such respect Individuals that we consider to be highlighted examples of those that are faithful. What about preachers, for example? You and I may look to them and appreciate men who stand sturdily and squarely and strongly upon the truth of God and never compromise or relinquish it. Isn't it then devastating when sometime later we learn of a preacher who has done things, acted in ways, and actually forfeited the truth that he once so boldly proclaimed? It can be a very hurtful and damaging matter to our own characters. We appreciate it, can't it? What about an elder? 
maybe an elders of some congregation who once were so strong and mighty in their defense of the truth, uncompromising in every regard to that which God had said, and yet, perhaps over the passage of time, it comes to where they aren't even faithful anymore. They don't even attend anymore. They've given full sway to the fullness of the evil that Satan has brought to them. What about deacons and even ordinary members of the church like you and me? Perhaps an individual who once was such a noble father or mother, strong husband or wife, maybe a great teacher for the cause of the Master and the ways God has allotted, but yet gradually over the course of time that person has lost his or her fervor, lost interest, and in fact, not even a recognized member of the church any longer. You see, the things that we've just described are matters that challenge us greatly because it does help us appreciate the fact that we must all be very dedicated and committed because these things we've just heard about and maybe we can think of examples that, in fact, I've just mentioned. It could happen to us. Near the bottom of that slide, you'll notice this. There are congregations in which there's open division and faction. Brethren can't get along with each other. The cause of Christ is tarnished or marred in that community. No one is interested in being a part of that organization because look at how they are. I can behave in a more loving fashion than that. And yet as those kinds of comments are made, sometimes isn't it true that the thought of hypocrisy well rings off the lips of those that you and I may know. In fact, one of the statements you, you might notice on that slide near the bottom is in fact this one. As the world looks on and sees events like what I've just described, preachers, elders, members of the church, open faction and debate, as the world looks upon, is it not true they can point a finger of accusation and say, look, if that's what Christ died for, if that's the church He purchased and established, I'm not that interested in even being a part of it. It does, in fact, impress upon you and me the character of the fact we're in a warfare and for reasons like that, Satan appears to have the upper hand at times. He can bring such a dark eye to the church. He can bring such a dark cloud of disfavor to the character of those who supposedly are the ones who are Christians. I know that I speak before an audience of many Christians today, and as we each give thought to the war in which we fight, look at what Satan can do. If we are careless, if we are not deliberate, if we are not committed, then Satan can do at Pippin what he has done in so many other places. And perhaps even more to the point, he can do in my life what he has done in the lives of so many others. We need to appreciate some of the facts that I have for us to discuss in just a moment. As you'll notice on this slide, to lead us to those points, here are some comments. It would seem then easy to say, when are you and I as Christians and when are we as congregations of the Lord's church going to realize that sin is not a trivial matter? It is not something to be toyed with. It is not something we see how close to it we can get and then try to trifle with its consequences. It is too deadly. It is fatal. It is, in fact, that which will eternally separate us from God if we allow it to do so. A few verses upon that slide point us to the fact Satan is a powerful enemy. 
In 1 Peter 5, 8, we are told, Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Might we take note, Satan is on the prowl to devour. He's not on the prowl to play. He's not on the prowl to make jokes or to exchange pleasantries. He is on the prowl to devour you and me. Not only that, consider this passage. In Revelation, the 12th chapter, verses 7, 8, 9, and 11, we find a description of that great red dragon, the one who is set before us as the deceiver of the whole world. He does not, in fact, exchange truth. Rather, he deceives. You'll notice, though, in verse number 11, that there is an attack upon him that should ever stand in the forefront of your mind and mine, and it is that characteristic of this. We, first of all, must rest on the blood of the Lamb. We, second of all, must appreciate the faithful word of His testimony. And then we must be willing to even die for His cause if that's what's required. Those things Satan cannot overcome. That dedicated, faithful follower of the Master. For he, in fact, is founded upon something that Satan cannot cast aside. All those things, in fact, lead us to note this. And this brings us full circle. This church of which we've spoken and how the world views it, it is safe to say that the church must be pure. P-U-R-E, pure. If it isn't, the world will not, be, will not see it as any different than the way the world is. If the church, those who are part of it, live and do the same things the world does, why would the church ever be something anybody would want to be a part of? I'm just as good as they are, and I live like they do. If the world doesn't see in you and in me a uniqueness, a peculiarness, a devotion and dedication to something that they see as distinct, then the church is not what the Master purchased, Acts 20, 28. And it's not the thing He promised to build, Matthew 16, 18. Purity is something that's required in these verses. Let's notice them in passing and then use them to help build the following three-point lesson. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5, verse 8. If it is your desire and mine to see the greatness of God some grand and golden and sweet day, we must be pure in heart. In 1 Peter 1, 16, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Just as surely as God is a holy being, He demands that of those that are His followers. Are you and I of that holy disposition? You might notice in Philippians 4, 8, on this occasion, Paul highlighted this as the thinking motivation for all of us. He said, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Do you and I fill our mind then with that which is true and honest and pure and just and lovely and of good report? If we fill our mind with those things, it's far more difficult for the devil to work in us and cause that which is not that to come out of us. We need to then be those who think upon what is pure. In 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, the inspired apostle John Speaking about the fact that when Christ comes, when He does return, we shall see Him as He is because we will be like Him. 
But then the next verse is the penetrating one for our lesson. He says that those who have this desire must purify themselves even as He is pure. Was Jesus a pure individual? Did He live in purity? Did He live in such a way that He distanced Himself from all those evil and godly things and used them to infiltrate His life? He certainly was in the midst of sin, but He tried to teach and encourage against it. He didn't participate in it. So too today, though you and I may often find ourselves in a world that is overwhelmed in sin, just like ancient Israel was, we must stand as the bulwark of faith and truthfulness, ever that example of what God has commanded in His Word. As you and I then give thought to purity, the bottom marching orders are given to all of us. Keep thyself pure. 1 Timothy 5.22 Paul not only made that statement to Timothy, he makes it to you and me. Randy Bybee, keep thyself pure. And all of you could put your names in the sentence as well. In 1 Thessalonians 5.22 we read, Abstain from all appearance of evil. It is with those thoughts in mind that I would invite you to consider with me a bit more carefully about the element of war that I'd like us to consider this morning. I know there are many things about war that might be described, but the limited time that we have will allow us to give thought to these. As you and I think about the Christian warfare, what happens on a daily basis in your life and mine, might I suggest that we incorporate these three things into our lives using the Word of God as our guide, that you and I might be better soldiers in the army of the Lord. First of all, we must understand that there is a war in which you and I are engaged. Let's revisit that passage Jeremy read for us just a moment ago in 1 Timothy 1 verse 18. As Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by thee mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The first point of consideration, starting verse 18, is this one. Understand that there is a warfare in which we're engaged. Paul gave Timothy a charge. You'll notice that word in the original language means an instruction. It means a command. Paul did not deliver a suggestion. He didn't deliver just some idle perspective or matter of inclination. This was a charge from Almighty God. I charge thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on before thee, that thou by, my, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. You and I are in war. In other words, we ought not then live carelessly, thinking that we are simply to note the pleasantries of the Christian life. There's no question God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, Ephesians 1, 3. And He is the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 5. Furthermore, to those who remain faithful, there's a crown of life awaiting. All those promises are given, James 1, verse 12. But while we're here in this flesh, may we never lose sight of the fact that we're fighting war. That means we must always be diligent, always on guard, always watchful, 
In fact, these passages point us in that very direction. This war in which we are fighting is literally an all-or-nothing, winner-take-all affair. We cannot afford to lose it. We cannot afford to be the loser in the war. For after all, we appreciate that your eternal spirit and mine hang in the balance. Some of the verses and some of the considerations that challenge us in this regard, in fact, are these. I've listed them for your consideration. Might we begin in 2 Timothy 2, verse, verse number 3. On that occasion, as Paul writing to Timothy, he said, very interesting, very interestingly and also rather carefully, that you and I should understand that we are fighting in a war. He told Timothy those very words. And in fact, he went on to say, No man that warreth entangleth himself in the affairs of the flesh. We all understand that a dutiful soldier understands his duty and will not shirk it. He's faithful and given to fidelity in terms of his mission. He's committed. He doesn't behave himself in a way that will lead to a failure in terms of the mission. He doesn't behave himself in a way that calls into question the integrity of the mission. He does that which he's commanded. When it comes to your Christian life and mine, what may we conclude? We're in a war. The enemy is everywhere around us. Oh, Satan doesn't appear in his red suit like that. But he's everywhere around us, seeking to devour us, seeking to overwhelm us, seeking to, in fact, cause difficulties in your life and mine in a sense that will destroy our faith. As you appreciate that war, you'll notice in 2 Corinthians 10, specifically verse 4, Paul said, "...the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds." Paul there said, the weapons with which you and I fight are not carnal. Oh, we don't use grenades and bombs and bayonets and tanks. The weapons you see that you and I employ in this spiritual warfare are not of that kind of war, and they're not of that kind of usage. You might well remember Paul said, I have fought a good fight. I finished my course, I've kept the faith. Paul viewed himself as having been engaged in war. But he said, I fought a good fight. Maybe if Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, highlights some of the immediate features that should come to your mind and mine. In those verses, Paul very powerfully said these things to the, to the Ephesians. Specifically, he said, You need to be able to stand, and having done all to stand. One of the things it's easy to see is if you and I are weak, Satan could and blow us off the character of faithfulness, and it won't take Him much. We need to be able to stand against the onslaught of what He's going to throw at us. And we can rest assured that what He throws will not be meager or mild. It'll be strong, forceful, mighty, to the point, and overwhelming if we aren't prepared for it. Satan does not play around, you see, with the eternal destiny of our souls. He wants to be the winner, plain, simple, and period. If we are to fight this war, we must understand we're in a warfare. In the Old Testament, more than once, the description is given about times when the children of Israel or other nations were in war, but God would, by virtue of His omnipotence and by His providence, allow those on His side to slip up and basically fight an enemy that wasn't even prepared. 
When that happened, was it much of a battle? When that happened, was it really much of an engagement? Well, of course not. When you slip up on the enemy unaware, you can overwhelm them with relative ease. So too it shall be in your life and mine. If we aren't ready, and if we aren't prepared to fight, it won't be much of a battle and Satan will win. Some of these thoughts near the bottom tell us, how do we be prepared for this and how do we ever remember we're in warfare first? Don't neglect the spiritual side of life. After all, this is the side that we're fighting. Satan's a spirit being and he wants our souls. No wonder we need to then give diligence to this book. Do we give thought to it? Do we pray often as we should? As we go about the activities of day of the day, certainly we can't sit and read the Bible 24 hours a day. But when the major decisions of life come, do we look to this book for its answers? When we face the hardships and oppressions, do we look to this book for encouragement? When great decisions of life come, do we look to this book for assistance and advice? When we are in need of counsel for activities in our own families, our own personal lives, do we go to God in prayer? It is something to consider. What about when the doors of the church are opened? Are we there as faithfully as we can be and should be? It should be noted that at Pippin, things are far better than they are at many other places. You'll notice for a typical number on Sunday morning, a large number is also here for Bible study. And that is wonderful. It illustrates and shows that in the lives and minds of individuals here, there's a commitment to this book and its teachings. But may we ever appreciate that we need to keep that going. Incre improve and increase it if we can at all. And even notice on Wednesday night, still there may be opportunity for continued growth in that area. You'll notice that realizing, though, that there's a war is one thing. Fighting it effectively sometimes can be different. Let's look at the next point in the lesson because notice Paul had more to say than just Timothy realize you're in a war. He also noticed in verse number 19 this, holding faith and a good conscience. May I submit there's the next point or lesson that I would invite us to take from that passage as we study it together today. In addition to a war, a good warfare, Paul said, hold faith and a good conscience. What might be involved in holding faith? That word hold, as you can see there on the wall, it literally means to have or to hold, to keep or to possess. And the tense of the verb is a very telling one. It's a continuous tense, meaning this is something to be done always. It is a fantastic and joyous occasion when you and I witness a person being baptized. That young person or even that older person who has made an open commitment before the eyes and hearing of many that they're going to live faithfully till death. They've made a confession, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Acts 8.37. But might we never forget Faith is not to be held just at the time of baptism. It's to be held all through life. A week later, a year later, 50 years later, if God so allows us to live. That does ask a good question of you and me. Am I still holding faith? Are you still holding faith? Is it something that we're holding as a prized possession? Our faith should mean a great deal to us. 
it should in fact be that thoroughfare that allows us, in the words of Hebrews 11:1, 1, to do this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Five verses later in Hebrews 11, verse 6, we read, For without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You and I can't please God without faith. And so question, am I holding faith? Understanding that it's only through the eye of faith is the means by which we must live. We walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. As we give thought then to holding faith, may we thus note this. That faith of which the New Testament speaks is an exceedingly precious prize. To Jude, or rather in the book of Jude, Jude wrote these words in Jude verse 3. He said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, I thought it needful to write unto you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all time delivered to the saints. There was a strong admonition for them to contend earnestly. You'll notice again that goes hand in hand with holding faith. Are you and I holding it as we should? Or as our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our associates see your life and mine, they really see nothing peculiar to that which is described in the New Testament. If so, we are not a very dutiful soldier. We are not a very dutiful person enlisted in the army of God. In fact, as you'll notice some of these verses, I've highlighted but two among many that might be listed. In Titus 2, verse number 14, speaking of Christ, it says that He has purchased us a prized possession zealous unto good works. How zealous are you and I toward those good works that are manifested in life? One chapter later in Titus 3 verse 14, Paul again writes and says, "...and let ours also learn to maintain good works that we be not unfruitful." We must then be busily filling our life with that which is good by the standard of God. Good works... And that will assist us to be a proper and dutiful soldier in the army of God. To this point, we've seen first, we must understand we're at war. Always while we're in this flesh. But now you'll notice we're supposed to hold faith, but then he says a good conscience. What might Paul have meant by that latter statement? What does it mean to hold a good conscience? Some of the words and some of the thoughts that the New Testament uses to assist us in that way, it seems, are presented like this. You and I must allow ourselves to be trained and to be guided and to be motivated by the teachings of this. Otherwise, our conscience will not be properly grounded. Consider Timothy as an example. To Timothy, it was noted that he had a very godly mother, a woman whose name was Eunice, a grandmother whose name was Lois, 2 Timothy 1 verse 5. But of this young man Timothy, it was said in 2 Timothy 3.15, that from a babe thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. From youth he had come to appreciate the nature of God's commandments and had striven to live his life in accordance with them. What about you and me today? Do we use the Reader's Digest or the Wall Street Journal as our principal guide in life? 
Do we use the latest self-help books? It's not to say that there might not be some interesting fodder for consideration in those things. But in terms of that which will lead to eternal life, isn't it still the case that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works? 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. It is for those reasons that you and I from an early age need to strive to train that conscience in such a way that it understands right from wrong and has a desire to always follow that which is right. It would certainly seem in light of those bottom statements, when you and I then conduct ourselves in a way that we transgress what this teaches or conscience will should bother us, it ought to gnaw at us so that perhaps we can't sleep well. Perhaps we find ourselves discombobulated and amiss during the course of the day. When that happens, we should be thankful that the conscience has been trained by this. Now, needless to say, it is possible for a conscience to be poorly trained. There are those who maybe can steal or take another person's life, and their conscience never bothers them because it has not been and has, in fact, not produced the character of being trained by this. What we're saying is ultimately this needs to be the final standard. As you'll notice in these words to Timothy, holding faith. Timothy had been left in this city of Ephesus to preach and to teach. As he was left in this place, he was going to be fighting against some notable and powerful enemies. Timothy was going to need to be strong. He was going to need to be convicted and convinced of the way of life stated in the Bible. There are many in our world today who try to present alternate considerations. God may have said that, some may say, but He really didn't mean it. There are some who say, well, that's just a general teaching. In specificity, one need not cling tenaciously to it. May we submit that still it is said in John 12, 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him, the word that I have spoken." the same shall judge him in the last day. You and I then need to appreciate that in this book are found the words of life. In this book is the matter of faith, and it is in this book we appreciate the need to live in accordance to it. And oh, what a blessing comes to that life that so lives. You'll notice there's one more thing, though. The third point in the lesson, and it's the one that comes to us in verse number 19 as well. After this observation of realizing we're at war, after the thought in verse 18 also that you and I should appreciate the need in that war to hold faith, we do notice, he says, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, and that leads us to this last element. We began the lesson by noting that there are some, maybe preachers, maybe elders, maybe members of the Lord's body, who at one time were faithful but no longer are. They've put away their faith. You see, what they have done is nothing new in the sense that there were some in Paul's day who had done it. Let's spend a few moments and the last element of our lesson today giving some thought to those who put away their faith and in that process undergo shipwreck. The image is this one. You and I currently are a vessel on the sea of life. 
there is a destination. It's heaven. That destination is so marvelous, so wonderful, and it's certainly the case that it would seem no one in the right mind would not want to make safely the destination. But you'll notice the imagery that Paul mentions is like this. What about those who have a shipwreck or suffer a shipwreck on the voyage? Do they make the destination safely? Obviously not. Maybe they never even make the destination at all. Isn't that a terrible picture? To think about perhaps making and having a desire to move toward a destination and to never make it. The same thinking will happen in regard to your faith and mine. If we don't fight a good warfare, if we don't hold faith and a good conscience, we may never make the destination. Let's give some thought to this latter statement. Again it reads, "...which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck." The Greek word that therein is present for this phrase, put away, really means to push aside, to thrust away, or to repudiate. In other words, the very thing that they once clung to so carefully, they have now distanced themselves from. And they've done it with intention. They've done it by, in fact, pushing it aside or repudiating it. We each can understand, perhaps, how gradually that kind of movement can happen. Paul didn't say it happened overnight. Gradually, over time, perhaps. And he even mentions in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander as specific ones who had done this. It would appear that these two at one time had been servants of the Lord. They had even been fellow companions to Paul, perhaps. But they now had made shipwreck. Isn't that a tragedy? It almost causes one to shed tears to think about these who perhaps were talented and could use those in a way to encourage the kingdom, and yet they themselves had suffered shipwreck. Hymenaeus and Alexander, you and I can only hope they came to their senses. They in fact made things right with God while breath was yet in them. But sadly enough, the Bible doesn't tell us that they did. We can surely hope so. Our goal this morning is to ensure that within your mind and mine that we conduct ourselves so that we do not suffer shipwreck of faith. I would invite you to notice these verses with me. That Greek word that's there used for that word shipwreck, it really means to suffer it, to undergo it. This is not simply a figurative way of describing it. It is literally the case that on this voyage in life, these two went aground. The tragedy of going to ground is that quite often the vessel itself can be greatly harmed if not destroyed. Have you and I known of individuals who maybe at one time were faithful, but yet due to something in life, maybe it was laziness, maybe it was carelessness, maybe it was apathy, perhaps it was indifference, maybe it was some particular tragedy that they endured, but as a result of it their faith crumbled. In every sense, they have made shipwreck. We understand that in life, difficulties will come our way. The devil will ensure that. We must make sure we're ready for it so that our faith doesn't run aground. Faith is so highly spoken of in verses like these. The loveliness, the need for, the impressiveness of faith. Are you and I holding it? Are we maintaining that good conscience? Are we aware that we're fighting war?
If not, we're almost certain to make shipwreck at some point. And it's almost certain that things are going to be so difficult and hard that it may be difficult for you and I to regain the proper voyage and the destination. If you think with me about some of the things that Paul faced and some of the things that others in the New Testament faced, the afflictions, the hardships, the other difficulties, you and I can suffer like things today. We must be ready. May we not be lazy. May we not set aside spiritual matters, but may we realize those are the most important matters in life. Really, they are. It is for that reason, here are some concluding thoughts. We've reminded ourselves today about Satan, our enemy, how that he really is a roaring lion and how he really is a deceiver of the world and how he really is interested in obtaining your service and mine. Not only is he interested, he will go seemingly to any length available to him to make that happen. We've learned three lessons. First, never underestimate him. Realize we're at war and the enemy is mighty. Secondly, hold faith in a good conscience. Thirdly, don't make shipwreck. Stay the course no matter what. As you and I allow the Word of God to be our guide concerning those matters, May we appreciate that today, if you need to make a public reaction, a public response to the Lord's invitation to you, it may be that you have never set sail for heaven yet. It may be that you still are a sinner who's never allowed Jesus' blood to cleanse you from sin. If that be the station in life, it's time to leave the port. Realize Satan has already paid the fare. You just have to get on board the vessel. And you get on board by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You get on board in a following way by appreciating the need to change the course of previous actions in life. Repentance, in the words of Luke 13, 3. You then need to confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, Acts 8, 37. And then to be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. Upon those things you are enlisted into the service of the Master. You can wear the name Christian, and the church is the spiritual family of which you're a part, Acts 2.47. Again, if you haven't begun that voyage, why not today? If you have begun it, but your ship has run aground, you have in fact become to be on a deserted island at this point. Realize in the New Testament that there is that second law of pardon. 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9 remind us that if there is public sin in your life, others are aware of those mistakes and they perhaps know of the disgrace you've brought to yourself and the church, why not come back to that first love? The New Testament teaches us that you need to repent of those sins and approach God by virtue of prayer and confession that He will forgive you. If you would like to do that today, we'd be more than delighted and honored to be of assistance to you. Brother Eddie has chosen this hymn of encouragement, and if during that time you'd like to respond in a public way, we would encourage you to do that, and let us assist you in the way that we can while together we stand and sing.